0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. In just a bit, a woman who brings people with and without disabilities together through storytelling and theater.
1: I felt that people with disabilities, especially kids, were not given the opportunity to be on stage.
0: But first... For police officers, a field training program takes new recruits and puts them under the wings of veteran officers. During the U.S. Justice Department's investigation into CPD, high-ranking Chicago police officials told the DOJ that the field training program was, quote, terrible and, quote, a hot mess. But now officials say they're turning it around. Patrick Smith is a criminal justice reporter for WBEZ. He describes some of the changes that have been made to the program and what exactly a field trainer does.
2: They work with police officers who are straight out of the police academy. So they've graduated in the last three months And basically, they're there to help these officers translate what they learned in the classroom to the street. It's sort of like, you know, you can only learn so much in a classroom. They're going to show how to apply that in real life. And also, they're supposed to sort of model how a police officer acts, how they carry themselves. They're almost like training wheels. They're there to help this— these young officers learn what it really means to be a police officer and what it means to be a good police officer.
0: And and it's generally agreed by officers, officials, and experts that the field training program is really the most important factor in determining an officer's future. Talk about that.
2: Everybody gets the same academy training, and hopefully it's it's good training in the academy, but classroom lessons can only go so far. So, you know, you learn by doing, especially with a job like being a police officer, and the quality of the mentor that you're assigned, quality of the guidance that they get and the example that's set, that really helps determine an officer's future. You know, It sets the path for them because it tells them what's important. It tells them how they're supposed to view other residents. It tells them how they're supposed to interact with the community. And so it can have a big difference if you've got a good mentor or a bad mentor. I talked with um, Chicago Police Sergeant Marty Chattis, who supervises the field training program about this exact question. Why is this so important? He agreed that this is a particularly important time for a young officer. The
0: program is important because it bridges what they learned in the academy and applies it into the field. So this is where we train them and mold them, and we push them to be the type of police officers that we want them to be. So we have police officers that can make quick decisions, make good decisions, make ethical decisions. Now, as I mentioned, there was the investigation into CPD by the U.S. Department of Justice in 2017, and they pointed out some real issues in the training program. What came out of that federal investigation? Uh, So much. I mean, the big top line
2: thing is that the Department of Justice said that a good field training officer program is the key to fixing the Chicago Police Department. It's the key to making this a constitutional police department. And they found that the Chicago Police Department, Their field training program was just an abject failure. They didn't have enough staffing, that there was not a one-to-one ratio of trainers to trainees, that sometimes it was up to three or four to one. They said CPD had not incentivized being a field trainer or made it a priority, so they weren't getting the very best officers to to mold these young cops fresh out of the academy. They said that the FTOs that CPD did have, the bar to become a trainer just wasn't high enough, particularly when it came to complaint or disciplinary history. And they said that the, the department did not do enough to supervise field trainers or remove bad FTOs, you know the DOJ report talked about field trainers who who were saying to new officers, "Forget what you learned in the academy. I will show you how to be the real police and that's the exact opposite message that young officers are supposed to be getting it's supposed to be building on and translating what they learned in the academy, not sort of saying, "Hey, forget all that you know classroom stuff, what it really means to be a cowboy out here that that's the lesson that, that at least some Young officers were getting. It's the exact opposite lesson of what they were supposed to be getting.
0: You spoke with Tina Anderson. She's the CPD director of the Office of Reform Management, and she's overseeing changes called for in the consent decree across different programs. What does she have to say about the focus on overhauling the field training program? Well, she made it
2: clear that this is a major priority for her team and the police department overall. She says they've been working on fixing the program since before the consent decree, you know, this court ordered police reform plan. Before that was ever in place, she said they were already trying. Trying to fix it. But she says that fixing this program is part of laying the foundation for consent decree success overall. The consent decree
0: recognizes that, um, you know, if you want to make improvement and, and broad uh, change in a department, you know, working with the folks who are just coming on the job, they are going to be the future of, of the department. So this field training program is really the foundation of everything else that happens with CPD. Let's get into specifics. What has the department done since the Justice Department report came out?
2: Well, they've more than tripled the number of field trainers. They they say they're at a one-to-one ratio of trainers to trainees, which is something the Department of Justice said was a baseline for a functioning program. And the department says they will never go back to not having that one-to-one ratio. They've upped the incentives for becoming an FTO, and they've done internal promotions to show how important the position is. They've added district level supervision of the field training program and field training officers, and they've overhauled the curriculum that that field trainers get. You know, when you apply to be a field trainer, you take a test. If you get accepted, you then go through a training. They've overhauled what that training is before the field trainers are allowed out training young officers.
0: Any specifics about what's included in that new curriculum?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's more about mentoring and leadership, conflict management, how to teach different learning styles. I mean, the sort of, I talked to the person in charge of the the training for FTOs, and she said that, you know, it used to be just sort of a refresher on what, it, you know, the, the basics of being a police officer. Now they really focus on how to teach someone else, how to mentor and lead, how to deal with conflict. And they've also added crisis intervention training. You know, that's how to deal with somebody dealing with a mental, you know, who's suffering from a mental health pro- problem or a mental health crisis. And I talked to a lot of field trainers who said that was really key because that's a big part of what you're doing as a field trainer. You're showing these rookie cops how to handle super high-stress situations and how to handle them well and de-escalate and talk to people and not just
0: sort of arrest your way out of of a problem. Now, the department conducts these internal anonymous surveys as part of the field training overhaul. What do the most recent surveys say about the program?
2: Yeah, so these surveys, they're actually part of that consent decree that we were talking about. They're required... The department's required to do that to sort of assess the program. And we got our hands on the most recent anonymous surveys of – Probationary police officers, the one getting the training, and the field training officers, the ones doing the training. So, now are the probationary officers actually reviewing the officers who are training them? They are not reviewing the individual officers who are training them. They are answering questions about sort of their overall assessment of the training they've gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- they're overall positive from both sides. They say, you know, they, they mostly learn a lot, they give high marks to the program. There were a few um, young officers who reported having a very negative experience with at least one of their particular field trainers. And of those few, Who said they had negative who had problems? They said they were unclear on the department policy for handling problem field trainers.
0: So explain a little bit more. Does the department have a policy for that?
2: The department has a policy for removing uh, field trainers when there's an issue, uh, if there's a complaint against them, or something else where where it's determined that they should not be training these young officers anymore. You know, I spoke to the the sergeant who's in charge of this program. He says he hasn't removed a field trainer in the last eight months, and there are some concerns or at least questions about how often they're really removing a problem field trainers and what the bar is to, to do that
0: so how long is a rookie officer in field training before they're considered ready to police on their own. The
2: way it's supposed to work is that a rookie officer will go through three field training cycles, which are about a month long each. So they get three months of field training with one each, each month with a different officer. That final field trainer, you know, they're not just training them. They're also certifying that they are field ready, that they're ready to go out on their own. If that field trainer says no, that this rookie is not ready to, to patrol on their own, they'll get another cycle of field training, uh, maybe more training if they need it. So most of them, three months. The other question, you know, I mentioned that the, the Department of Justice found that the bar was just too low for people who wanted to be a field trainer, especially when it came to complaint history. Those standards have not changed in the past three years. I, I'm not, I, to my knowledge, there's not any uh, plan to change them.
0: One question that occurs to me is if there is a field training officer who is found not to be fit to train younger officers. Is there any connection made between their unfitness to fill that position and their fitness to actually police? I
2: know that there was at least one field trainer who was removed in July. This came up actually at at city council last week because of a lawsuit in which a field training officer was um, accused of of shoving someone who was in custody. He was removed from the field training officer program, but... um, is still a police officer at least according to what was said at at the city council hearing I don't you know I don't believe that just because you're removed from the field training officer program that means you're removed from the police department unless the misconduct is so egregious that, that you would be separated, you know, and that would go through the police board process.
0: Well, we know the process of moving through the consent decree will take several years. Uh, what will you be keeping an eye on specifically when it comes to field training? In particular, the the independent monitor who's
2: overseeing the consent decree progress she in her next report is supposed to be analyzing and evaluating the field training program here in Chicago. So that is due in a couple months. That means we won't see it for for a few months after that. Um, you know, I was able to uh, talk to a lot of field trainers, talk to some PPOS, talk to people in charge, see the training curriculum and the budget staffing. But you can only know so much. I don't know what the quality is like on the street. So I am really interested to see how she evaluates this program when when we get to see her next report.
0: That's WBEZ criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith. Patrick, thanks. Thank you. As a kid, Techie Lamnicki spent many nights at the hospital. She was born with dwarfism and needed multiple surgeries so she could walk. At the time, her parents weren't allowed to visit her after 8 p.m., but a nun would stop by and tell her funny stories from her life. That's when Lom fell in love with storytelling. From that experience, Lom became a solo performer and playwright, and she's been at it for more than 35 years. She's also the co-founder and artistic director of Talent Tales Theater. It's a Chicago theater company with the mission of bringing together people with and without disabilities through storytelling. I talked to Lamniki for the latest in our Chicago Creative Series. In this series, we bring you conversations with innovators from the Chicago area in a variety of fields. We started our conversation with Nicky telling me about those days in the hospital and about the nun who used to tell her stories.
1: I mean, I was just this little, scared little thing, and this jolly nun with rosy cheeks, Sister Mary Thekla would come into my room, and the stories she would tell were great. I thought of her, like, as Maria from The Sound of Music. Uh. Like, she told me about uh, pranks. She and the other novices would play on the really old sisters. (laughs) And it would just crack me up.
0: So the kinds of things that would really capture a kid's attention. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, you grew
1: up in Elmhurst. You caught
0: the theater buck when you were in high school. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that, that first introduction to theater.
1: Oh. Well, I decided I wanted to try out for Hello Dolly, the musical. And the director told us all to stand at a ledge on the stage. There were these two, like, sort of ledges where you could, like, lay your arms and, and sing. Well, I didn't know anything about adapting to different situations at the time. I just thought I had to follow instructions. So it was my turn. He yelled, Next. And I got behind that ledge. And I sang, and he said, I can't see you, but you're in. In that moment, that first, you're in, where did, where did that hit
0: you? How did you feel?
1: It just, <laughs> it hit me just in the heart. I was just so thrilled. And in fact, that drama director was our first board president of Tell and Tales Theater. Really? And now continues on our board. When you
0: took the stage for the first time in in a live performance, were you worried, concerned, just as a first time actor?
1: Oh, absolutely. However, I was just in the chorus, mm-hmm. so it was easy. I had to like just blend in, you know, with everyone else. And what I did have to watch out for, though, was not being trampled and also, Always be seen. Well it's interesting because as,
0: as an actor when you're on stage you you do have to have this kind of hyper awareness of the people who you're sharing the stage Absolutely. with. Absolutely. And I wonder if in some ways that hyper awareness I don't want to say made you a better actor, but just having that consciousness that I'm not existing on the stage by mm-hmm. myself. You know what I mean?
1: I think it did. Yeah. I think it did. And now as I direct. A lot of people with disabilities on the stage, I see the same thing, where they are very good at knowing where to go and where to be seen.
0: Well, you started Tell and Tells Theater in the 90s after leading a summer theater program for kids with and without disabilities. Why did you feel like you needed to start this theater?
1: Well, I felt that people with disabilities, especially kids, were not given the opportunity to be on stage I didn't see it a lot back then. I see it more now, but I didn't see it then. And my friend Michael and I decided that we were going to write a play about a Southern folk artist, and it was based on a real person. We interviewed her. I played her. We did it at the Blue Rider Theater, and we also did it at American Blues Theater, and it was called When Heck Was a Puppy, the real-life testimonies of folk artist Edna Mae Bryce. And people just ate that up that it was these it was personal stories. And I also interjected some of my story in there about having a disability, even though I was playing a character. And so we decided there needed to be a theater dedicated to story. And then it just translated so well into inviting people with disabilities.
0: Well, your mission is to break down barriers between Mm -hmm. people with and without disabilities through storytelling, through acting. But you say it took some time for you to acknowledge your own disability. Talk about that.
1: I always say I came out as a little person. It felt like that when I finally realized that it was okay to admit it. I was walking around thinking no one noticed because I was in denial. And through therapy, kicking and screaming, I went to a Little People of America conference for the first time. And I just noticed, hey, everybody here is pretty much like me. You know, they all want to succeed. They, they all have jobs. You know, some of them have kids. And it just, it just broke through my denial. And I always walked around thinking, oh no, what if somebody says something to me about my height or what if somebody says something mean to me or whatever? What if kids stare at me? Now it's like, hey, this is who I am and I'll talk to you about it. How do you think
0: that breakthrough affected the way you approach storytelling and
1: playwriting? I think that I could go so much deeper now, really deep. Like the piece that I'm doing Uh, this weekend and next weekend for Filet of Solo is like that. I wrote it a long time ago, and I read it again. And a dear friend of mine read it, and she said, you know what, I think you could go deeper with this. And then I looked, and it was like, yeah, I'm a different person now.
0: Where do you go? So where is that next level, that deeper level?
1: I think it's honesty level to really tell people what hurt. Tell people how how I felt in different moments. Is that part of the challenge? Is that
0: that level of honesty requires from you a willingness to make people uncomfortable?
1: Yes. That's it. Where I spent my whole life trying to make people comfortable. I really did. How did
0: your parents feel about
1: your aspirations? My mom was a bit protective at first about doing a lot of theater but my dad was like, yeah, you know, let her do whatever she wants. And I play him a lot, of, a lot in my pieces. But very, very encouraging. Hmm. And they were the types that would not let me feel sorry for myself. What did that look like in action? It looked like if we were somewhere and kids were staring at me, you know, mom would say, just tell them sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. So it was always like, be strong, be strong, be strong. So then when I had the breakthrough, I realized I needed to grieve Mm -hmm. being different. And then I could go on.
0: Yeah, because that's the the tricky thing about childhood and the hope that words don't hurt. But in fact, they do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They do.
1: And my first therapist said, you know what? It was good that they were that way. They made you really strong, better that than parents that coddled you, you know. Because I had to do—I have two brothers, I had to do the things they did. You know, it was—it was great.
0: As we mentioned earlier, you've been part of the local theater community for years. What do you think about the theater scene in Chicago and and how inclusive it is of people with disabilities?
1: I think the scene has gotten a lot better. I'm impressed they have a lot of auditions for people with disabilities and the one thing that i think we're lacking and i think we're all working on is having accessible spaces not only for the audience but for us backstage we need room backstage you know we need washrooms that are accessible we need to be able to just zoom onto the stage not have a step there That's one thing that still needs to be done. Yeah, because
0: you're talking about a city where there are a lot of older theaters. And Mm -hmm. you've got these narrow hallways and these sometimes winding staircases and very tiny green rooms. And it can be tricky. When you are working with actors in Tell and Tell's theater, how do you ensure that that's front of mind? Like, how do we make this space accessible, not just for people who are attending a performance, but for the performers themselves?
1: We just make sure we would not rent a space that wasn't accessible. Now, I have to admit, some of them have very small backstage areas, and we make it work.
0: You dedicate much of your time and efforts to closing that accessibility gap. And several years ago, we talked about (laughs) diversity. It's an original show your theater produces. It features solo performances by writers and actors with disabilities. How else are you trying to offer more opportunities to performers who have disabilities?
1: Well, we're working on an extremely exciting project. We're writing a new musical, which spotlights the disability experience. Working title is always greener, We're about to launch a workshop production of it. And most of the cast is people with disabilities. Tell us about the plot. Oh, the plot is amazing, if I may say so myself. I'm one of the um, book writers. And the plot is about a utopia that was built by a veteran. And it's a place where everything is accessible. It has a dome over it, even. So people can breathe. You know, there's no smog. There's nothing to hurt people, no allergens. And everything, everything is accessible. And way back in, we're saying in the 80s, when when he built this place, there was a lottery even to get in. And so parents would put their children in the lottery and then give them up to live in this beautiful place. So our heroine is Terry, who has lived in this utopia her entire life. She was given to a couple to raise, a couple with disabilities. She's the fitness director of the place, and she's very loved, very loved there. And all of a sudden, someone breaks in, a wild, non-binary person named Raven breaks in because they need accessibility. They've heard rumors about this place. Mm. And Raven and Terry become fast friends, and Terry realizes there's there's more out there.
0: What's interesting is that part of this production is focused not on what people with disabilities need, but what they want. Just unpack that for us, that difference between need and want.
1: It's like we need accessibility. We need ramps. We want love. We want respect. We want adventure. We want great sex. And, and that's, that's what Terry wants. Well,
0: all the roles written for people with disabilities will be played by actors, singers with disabilities. Yes. Tell us a little bit about this cast you're pulling together.
1: Well, um, we just had a reading of it in May, and we put together a cast. However, we're looking now. We don't know. Not everyone is available. Mm-hmm. So it's it's people of all ages, people with disabilities of all ages, all different disabilities, which is really cool. Different races as well. It's really, it's, it's a great cast. If people want to audition, perhaps,
0: or get more involved
1: mm-hmm. in Tell & Tell's theater, how can they do that? they can go to our website, tellandtales.org, and write to us. And check out our alwaysgreenermusical.com website.
0: Now, your theater is part of the 23rd anniversary Filet of Solo Festival at Lifeline Theater in Rogers Park, and you'll be performing this Saturday. Can you give us a little taste of, of what people can see?
1: Yes. Yeah. What this is called is... Last Dance. And one thing I have to preface about it is that I have great music in it. Okay. So it's disco music. (laughs) Right. I used to think of myself as Bette Midler. I referred to myself as the last of the tacky ladies. I submitted a stinky perm so my hair would curl just like hers. I talked trash. I wore flash. And hung around at the gay bars. Alfie's, Broadway Limited, and my favorite, the Bistro. There, among the queens, I was princess. The bouncer screamed as I made my grand entrance onto the dance floor like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, armed with an underage amaretto stone sour. I loved when the dance floor was a mass of gorgeous men with me in the middle. And when the music slowed, some sweet blonde would get down on his knees and slow dance with me. In the ladies' room, the ladies were really tacky and stood and faced the toilet to pee. I loved the bars. I loved the attention I love the unconditional love I felt every time I walked in. And the feeling of not being rejected like I felt at the bars on Rush Street. But I wouldn't have admitted that back then.
0: Hmm. That's Techie Lomniki, co-founder and artistic director of Tell Tales Theater. Before I let you go, when you think about the Chicago theater scene, 10, 20, 30 years from now, what would you like to see?
1: Wow, I'm tearing up. I I would really like to see my dream really come true of people with and without disabilities really working together on stage. I know it'll happen. That's Techie
0: Lomnicki, co-founder and artistic director of Tale and Tales Theater. Techie, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Jen.
0: And that's today's Reset. Do you know someone in or around Chicago making their community a better place to live and work? Well, leave us a message on our hotline. Tell us about them. The number is 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And let's talk again soon.